Civic Radio. There's the private realm and there's the public realm. And then there's a huge space in between, which I think is under threat, where people form their identities by their participation in various overlapping communities. Simon Willis, Chief Executive of the Young Foundation, and a guest for this episode of Civic Radio. The Young Foundation works on social innovation with various communities around the UK and outside the UK, trying to tackle the causes of structural inequality. We've been out and about talking to people about citizenship and the relationship between civic participation and exclusion. Our first question for Simon was, as a starting point, how do you go about measuring social inequality? Uh, incredibly tough. You know, and there's been a lot of fantastic work done recently on rising wealth and income inequality and the concentration of wealth in very small number of hands. But I think the whole issue is far more complex than that. And we're very interested in, for example, gender inequality. And you can't really understand wealth and income inequality unless you see what's happening on gender, where there's increasing evidence, for example, that the, the, the many uh, wonderful gains of the last century uh, are some of them under threat, even on basic things like gender pay gap. And you see this as, as various parts of the economy start to uh, you know, push towards zero-hours contracts, uh, less certainty in employment, lower-paid employment. It started in areas like teaching and caring, but I think you'll see that spread more widely, replacing poorly-paid male workers with even more poorly-paid female workers. So there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of complex interplay going on there between gender inequality and income inequality. But I haven't really answered your question about how we measure that. The, the way that we do it is... We don't do quantitative measurement very much here at the Young Foundation because there are many places that do it very well. So, you know, we tend to partner with others. What we bring to the picture is the qualitative understanding, what's, what's, what's really happening in these communities, how is it impacting people's day-to-day -day lives to be living um, on, on very low wages, to be living in very precarious circumstances. And that's not really something you can measure. You're talking about the impact on somebody's sense of self. It's not a measurable thing. So it's sort of people's own sense of their own equality is more important or as important as actually how this, a sense of equality in wider society? Because if you're, if you're speaking qualitatively, then you're, you're talking to people about how they feel. But there, there, is, there must be some kind of... There must be an interesting relationship between how people feel and actually their standing in society on whatever different level. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And it, 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 again, it's, you know, it's, it's fantastically complex. But what we see is that people have a very hazy notion, of, actually, of what their objective position is in you know, the overall income distribution. Um, but they have a strong sense of being excluded from political power, from voice, from routes through to opportunity to employment, to higher education maybe, to participation in the, the good life, to participation in decision-making about their community. So they feel not only excluded but disempowered, cut off, some, somewhat hopeless, a lack of aspiration, a justifiable 
sense of a lack of aspiration and, and a sense that they don't really count for anything. They don't really, they don't really matter. Nobody really cares about them. They've kind of been forgotten and left aside. Is is if we a fabulous book published recently by somebody that we work with at the LSC called Lisa McKenzie, called Getting By. It's an ethnography of a large housing estate in Nottingham called St Anne's. And what you find is those people, in the main, regard themselves as completely forgotten by the rest of society and having no relevance to it or much to offer it. And so they turn to each other to support each other in whatever ways they can to get by. So when you're thinking about promoting civic change, is the, and I guess it's going to be a case of, 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 of both things, but is it a case of changing people's perception of their position within this structure, or is it a case of making changes to the, the structure that allow people to participate and have their voice heard? I think you have to do both. I mean, there's, there's no question at all that there are certain policy changes that need to be made. There are certain top-down things that can only be done at the city level, the regional level, and the national, even the European level in certain cases. You take something like unpaid internship, which is you know, a small but significant contribution to, to inequality. It's, it's probably something that, in the end, is, is only going to change if governments say, we will prosecute you for ignoring the minimum pay legislation. At the same time, I think you have to have this this bottom-up stuff. You have to find, you have to connect people in ways that allow them to find their own uh, voice and power, their own agency, and assist them. And I don't think it takes much to start to take control of things within their own communities, within their places and, and their cities, and effectively stop thinking that all the solutions to the problems of the poor lie in doing things to or at the poor, as it were, but rather saying we created a whole lot of structures and institutions which have excluded them from opportunity. Uh, Now we have to uh, not only fix some of those structural elements, but we have to hand voice and power to those people and, and, and allow them to start to build new institutions from the ground up in their in their communities. Um, to what extent do you feel there's a a willingness and acceptance on the part of? Uh, I think that's a real problem. Our main political parties are all still fundamentally very centralist and very top down, uh, and very in in one way or another very paternalistic in in all of the senses of that word. They pay lip service to the idea of empowerment of people through things like a big society or, or, or whatever. But, um, you know, I think incumbent elites aren't that way because they really want people to be engaged and empowered. Um, they, they are managed by a small group of people, perhaps not even consciously, uh, to protect the interests of that small group of people, I'm afraid. And that goes for all political parties? I guess we're talking about the UK at the moment... Yeah, I think there are some very interesting political parties entering entering the scene now because we have a vast, probably majority, but certainly a vast number of people who feel not only the institutions not there to serve their interests, the banks, the criminal justice system, the press, the churches even, uh, but 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 that the political parties also no longer really there for them and giving voice to their concerns, certainly in a way that they can really understand even if they 
aspire to do that, which is why I think you see the rise of things like the SNP and very coming from a very different place, UKIP. Uh, you know, and I would I would compare those to um, you know what you see happening in 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 Spain with Podemos and um, you know in Greece recently with the victory of Syriza. There's definitely movement afoot in this country. To go back to your question, the sign that the major political parties are aware of the crisis of legitimacy that faces them are few and far between. Actually, you know, we work with the hundreds of small enterprises, social enterprises, um, movement builders, uh, activists, companies even. If they're working on addressing inequality, then we're interested in working with them. To give an example, we have a thing called Young Academy at the moment, which uh, provides a platform for uh, very small startups, social enterprises and others who have an idea about how to address inequality in the education system. We give them support, mentoring on things like governance, the use of IT, the use of social media, impact measurement, and so on and so forth. We bring in mentors from a wide range of partners, but we also give them funding, both uh, grant funding and and ultimately, uh, when, when people are ready for investment funding, if they have some kind of sustainable business model. And... There are, there are literally dozens of organisations that we've either worked with recently or are currently working with that are working on either a theme like inequality in education uh, or in a place like Nottingham or Leeds um, or Belfast. Um, and, you know, we, we have a number of place-based programmes as well. You know, what you typically get are, are people who have, have worked within the system. Maybe if you take the healthcare example, people who have worked as practitioners and people who have been patients or are in the families of patients who come up with an idea about how to do something that is more effective and more respectful and allows people uh, more dignity and they come to us with these ideas and we try to give them the facility to grow that idea and to have greater impact. But if you look back across our 60-year history, some of those have grown quite large. You know, I guess the obvious one that comes to mind would be something like the Open University, which spawned many other Open Universities around the idea that people should have a second opportunity at higher education uh, if they missed it the first time round. Assuming that you, you've, you've, you've funded and supported a startup and it's built mm-hmm. into a medium-sized thing which is having actual yeah. effect, it's actually being, being rolled out. If people don't want to engage with this thing, they're automatically excluded from this. Now, that, is, that is a constant, really tough challenge. Uh, and, you know, reaching the people that you really really want to reach, uh, who have been most excluded or impacted by the, the, the economic environment and educational opportunities they've been given. So a lot of our ventures are structured precisely to try and address that point. And I'll give you two or three examples. Uh, we spent out a year or two an organisation called Uprising, which is about giving people leadership mentoring. The whole organisation is is built on the premise that it will only work with people who never become leaders, who are in the hardest-to-get-at places, and increasingly try to create a cascade whereby people who come from a similar background can mentor and inspire those uh, who, who don't see leadership as a possibility for them. And that's growing quite fast at the moment uh, as an organisation. I'm not saying it can reach everybody, 
I think, you know, another fabulous start-off that spun out of here a couple of years back, Maslaha, is um, specifically about um, working with, uh, you know, Muslim communities who feel um, confused or bewildered about how they can go on being true to their heritage but also, you know, play a full role in, in British society. And, and if you like, Maslaha provides a meeting place and a platform to try and answer those questions. Uh, so that's a different kind of exclusion. You know, that's constantly the sort of thing that we're wrestling with in, in, in working with people who come to us um, for support or come to us with an idea or, or ideas that, that start in, inside the organisation and then move out. So you can do a lot of things, you can do everything you can to make these opportunities available to people, but after that it comes down to a sort of personal decision. I'm interested in, do you think it's our responsibility as individuals within society to take an active interest in how we're running our position in society? I think you really have to be quite careful when you're thinking about these issues of personal responsibility. There is a growing tendency uh, within our own society and some others uh, for us to feel comfortable with blaming people for the position that they're in. Let's take an example like obesity. Somebody is not going to deal with their own obesity if they don't at some point take a measure of personal responsibility to eat in a certain way uh, and to live their lives in a certain way. And we can't just wave some kind of magic wand as, as a state or as a community group or anybody else and, and, and fix somebody's obesity. So that personal responsibility is critical to success in that area. However, there's a tendency sometimes to focus on that to the exclusion of the factors around that person that have made it almost, not quite, but almost inevitable that they should become obese. We live in you know, what the experts here call an obesogenic environment where the interaction between how we're made up physically and the kind of foods that are available to us at the price that we can afford makes it incredibly difficult. We have many people living in parts of this country where they literally can't get good, healthy, affordable food for their families without extreme effort, perhaps without catching a bus or two buses to get to the place where that kind of food might be available because the immediate environment they're in is one where kind of energy-saturated, low-cost, you know, combinations of corn syrup, salt and, and, and fat are, are, are made readily available and are almost, almost physically addictive um, because of the way that those foods have been structured. So people do need to take personal responsibility, but we as a society need to take responsibility for the fact that we have allowed that environment to be created that has made it so incredibly difficult for somebody who is struggling on six different fronts to deal with a question like obesity. And I think you could tell that story again and again and again, you know, depending on the kind of educational opportunities they had, the kind of family background they had, the kind of housing that they live in, and all of the determinants of, you know, the fact that, for example, you know, you only have to go a few stops here to, to see a 15-year difference in life expectancy between people. Yes, we need to give people those, those tools and those narratives and most fundamentally of all, the, the networks of local support, family, extended family, community, 
and all the other overlapping communities that allow someone to realize their, their, and fulfill their potential. Um, but at the same time, we have to understand that we've made it very difficult for a lot of people. Simon Willis, Chief Executive of the Young Foundation for Civic Radio. We're based at the Civic Shop, currently at Somerset House in central London. And you can find us online at www.civicworkshop.city. Civic Radio.